In the age of President Donald Trump, free speech at colleges and universities has become an especially volatile topic. But it's not a new area for David French, a conservative who writes for the National Review. French was in St. Louis on Wednesday to speak at Washington University. Before making his lecture, he joined us for the latest edition of the Politically Speaking podcast. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens. Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast, the only show about Missouri politics that requires our guests to do PowerPoint presentations for us. Not really, because they're boring. <laughs> I'm, I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, the interim temporary editor here at St. Louis Public Radio. For jo- politics. For politics. Joining me in studio today is... Uh, colleague Joe Manis. And our, our very special guest today, we're thrilled to have him. We have... David French from National Review. Um, welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. For, for people that don't know who you are, we always have our guests who are on for the first time, explain a little bit about themselves. So please tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm a a senior writer at National Review, which is, for those who don't know, um, the largest circulation political magazine in the country. Really? It it is indeed. And conservative, uh, conservative magazine founded by William F. Buckley. And I write primarily about constitutional law, law of armed conflict, foreign policy. But uh, for many, many years, I was a free speech litigator. I... I, um, I like to say, although it may not be true anymore because there have been a lot more lawsuits filed, but I may have sued more colleges on free speech grounds than any other living lawyer. Do you get a trophy for that? No trophy, not even a participation ribbon. It's it's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, I'm actually I'm old enough that I actually interviewed William F. Buckley a couple times. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Fascinating man. And I know that National Review right now, it's you have at least some of your editors have somewhat of a rocky relationship with the president. <laughs> That's an understatement, uh, <laughs> including yourself. You almost ran against Trump. Kane, uh, I, it's still hard to believe that I, the, I. It's hard to believe that I can say these words. But yes, I actually almost ran against Trump as an independent. I was part of what you would call never Trump. Uh, I was against both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. So, but that's not what you're here to talk about no, today. Right. Although we could probably talk about the, the president ad nauseum. You're, you're here in St. Louis to give a lecture at Washington University later today about free speech on college campus campuses, which is actually an issue that's been, as you kind of alluded to, uh, bubbling up for decades, if not right. years. Listen, it was a big issue when I was in the co- when I went to college in the early '70s. Yes. When I was in law school in the early 90s, 91 to 94, uh, that was a time of shoutdowns. Yes. Um, that was, you know, multiple times when I was speaking from a conservative perspective in classes, I would be shouted down in class. So this is something that's been bubbling up. But I think what's happening now is it comes and goes in waves, and we're right in the middle of a, a wave of campus censorship. And one of the things that's different about this wave from the wave when I was uh, in, uh, in law school is it's far more widespread across the nation, and it's not confined in the so-called elite campuses. Uh, when I was, you know, when I was in law school, 
this kind of thing, the shout downs and the and the protests were not happening in a place like, say, University of Alabama or University of Tennessee or to take the local example, Mizzou, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was not really happening. Now it's spreading much more across the country. Do Why you, do you think that is? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a, a couple of reasons. Uh, I think, number one, um, we have a much greater ability to, trans, uh, to transmit information and strategies and tactics across the country rapidly than we used to. You know, how would you know that there were shoutdowns happening in Harvard Law School, for example, if you're a student in – you know, if you're a student at uh, the University of Alabama. I mean, you, you mean in real time. In I real mean, time. It, it might eventually come out. I mean, in the 70s, mm-hmm. you knew where the where the shutdowns were. There was a lot of stuff dealing with the Vietnam War then yeah. and the aftermath. You had a na- – well, that was a – boy, the late 60s, early 70s. I think a lot of people – I look at it – I was born in 69, so I look at it from a historical perspective. But people forget <laughs> how, how in, uh, much and how much upheaval the entire – culture, the entire nation was at that time. So this was, you know, part of a, an enormous national movement, whereas in the early 90s, this was much more confined, I think, in the uh, more elite campuses. But some would say that for different reasons and with different issues, right. and some of the stuff that I'm seeing now, some of the unrest uh, on ca- college campuses really reminds me of the early 70s, although some of the issues are different, right. but some of the fervor and the passion yes. is the same. Yes, that's true. So like, since we're all going into nostalgia <laughs> mode for a second, I, I went to uh, the University of Missouri-Columbia from 2002 to 2006, and I vividly remember that was a time of upheaval, too, because that's mm-hmm. when the Iraq War mm-hmm. was just starting. And I remember Ann Coulter coming on campus. Right. I remember her getting tough questions from the crowd, right. but I don't remember her getting shouted down. And I also don't really remember a lot of instances where certain speakers were were blocked on campus. Maybe they got opposition. Maybe they had people that didn't agree with them go to that right. speech and, and ask them pretty hard-hitting questions. But are you saying, like, right now that there's a phenomenon where people on the left and the right are just being flat-out blocked from even speaking? As yes. I said, this reminds me more of the 70s yes. where it was just vicious. Yes. Vicious. Yeah, and, and that is actually absolutely happening. So what you're what you see now is a widespread belief, and I mean a very widespread belief that words can be violent. So I'm actually writing a uh, story right now, reporting on the results of a new survey of college students, and 81 percent say agree with the statement that words can be violence. And so if you have the position that words can be violence specifically hate speech. And then you define hate speech very broadly as essentially any kind of language that subjectively offends a person of a, of a historically disadvantaged group. Then you have done everything you need to do intellectually to justify direct action. And that means things up to and including trying to physically attack Charles Murray, uh, the riots that happened at Berkeley, the physical blocking of Heather McDonald at Claremont, the threats against Brett Weinstein, uh, at Evergreen State College that forced him to have his – and we have his classes off campus for his own safety and the safety of his students. I mean these things are happening all over the country. I mean we, we can't even just sort of string them all together in a list anymore. I actually was reading an article in Reason magazine, although it was online, so I guess it was Reason Online, of a situation where somebody from the ACLU tried to speak and then they were shouted down because the ACLU has represented a number of – un unsavory people in the Charlottesville situation, which doesn't mean that they agree with them, but they have a pretty long tradition of representing 
reprehensible people on free speech grounds. And, right. and I think that they weren't even the person from the ACLU wasn't even allowed to say anything. Yes. Because she, I think it was she was shouted down. And that was at William and Mary last week. And so, you know, they, there you had an ACLU representative accused of white supremacy, um, which to accuse the ACLU of white supremacy is a stretch, to say the least. So from your standpoint, do you propose any um, I don't know, I don't know if solutions is the right, right word, but common ground or ways to ease some of these tensions so that I mean, because many of us in journalism do believe in free speech. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm a big believer that you need to hear all sides um, because what do you know what you agree with or don't agree with if you never hear what different groups have or different viewpoints have to say. Well, I'm, I'm a big believer in the John Stuart Mill argument for spe- free speech that essentially says, look, we're all flawed and imperfect human beings. We don't have all the knowledge we need to have or all the wisdom we need to have. So if I'm talking to you guys and you provide new information to me and a new perspective and it causes me to change my mind, to go from error to truth, that exchange has been a, a tremendous benefit to me. But then people say, well, what if we're talking and we don't agree? Or maybe you really offend me or hurt my feelings. Well, what Mill would say about that is what you've done is you've allowed me to sharpen my thinking. You've allowed me you've, – you've informed me of a different perspective and you've given me the opportunity to test my ideas against a worthy opponent. And that sharpens my own thinking and it toughens me up to live in a pluralistic society. But a lot of people don't see any value in that at all. So to solutions, well, one of the things we have to have is a civic education in this country. I mean – There was just a poll released um, yesterday that demonstrated that a majority, a small majority of GOP voters actually support stripping citizenship, citizenship from people who burn a flag. That's a stunning, that's a absolutely stunning rejection of free speech. Um, So what we have is a cultural collapse in, uh, in, in the belief that there is value in hearing dissenting opinions, and that is a that's manifesting itself on college campuses, and it's manifesting itself off campus. Well, it's also manifesting itself, I think, in the whole flap over the um, football players taking a knee during the national anthem, without getting into the debate of whether or not they should or shouldn't. And again, I'm going to sound like an old fogey, <laughs> but but the fact is. In my day, in the <laughs> 60s and early 70s, people were burning flags. They were wrapping themselves up in flags. They were shredding flags. They were doing all sorts of awful things. So from my standpoint watching this, regardless of whether one agrees or disagrees on what they're um, taking a knee for, frankly, that's pretty mild. And yet it's created a huge, uh, probably rightly so, a discussion but also a lot of, I mean, now there's controversy about whether or not they're going to be ordered to stand during the national anthem and that sort of thing. But I think in some ways it's related oh, to what's going on in the college of campuses. Of course it's related because what we're dealing with is the question, how much, how much tolerance do you have as an individual for speech that offends you? And that's a core cultural question. And, and let's just get one thing out of the way. The president of the United States has absolutely no business telling private citizens that they should stand or be fired, and if people don't engage in the speech that the president wants them to engage in, then an economic boycott should follow. That is an absolute repudiation of our constitutional order. It's completely inappropriate. And what's stunning to me is the number of people who say, oh, that's fine. That's totally cool. And, and look, this goes back to one of the most important free speech cases in the history of the United States, 1943, West Virginia versus Barnett. We're in the middle of World War II. World War II, 
the outcome is in doubt. West Virginia uh, Board of Education passes a resolution requiring people to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance in public schools in West Virginia. And, And a group of Jehovah's Witnesses who were patriots, but they did not believe that they could biblically honor the flag in that way, sued for the opportunity to opt out of the mandatory pledge. And the Supreme Court said, again, this is in the middle of the war for not just the national survival, but for the survival of Western civilization, civilization, says if there's any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it's that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what is orthodox in matters of law, culture, politics, nationalism. And so when we're saying you must stand, you must stand, if it's a public official, you're violating the letter, you're violating the letter of Barnett. If you're a, p- a private citizen, you're violating the spirit of Barnett. I want people to stand for the flag out of love, not because they're being forced to or they'll be fired. Well, I want to take a step back because one of the things about free speech that was especially relevant in Missouri was in two years ago when there were some major protests that would ha- happen um, from primarily African-American students at the University of Missouri-Columbia. And, you know, one of the things I noticed, especially from more conservative pundits, not necessarily you, but but from people on the right, is there was kind of this intense focus on the protesters' tactics, similar to how you see a big emphasis on what the NFL players are doing and their right. tactics, without really like saying what their message was or what they were protesting. At the University of Missouri-Columbia, the students were protesting what they felt was a hostile racial environment right. on campus, but there was more focus on you know whether the football game was going to be boycotted, um, you know, Melissa Click with the whole use the muscle situation, which yeah. I said on Twitter was completely inappropriate when it happened. I mean, have you noticed that, too, that there is also a focus on the right about about tactics as opposed to what the actual message is? Well, you know, absolutely. The the message gets lost in the method often. So when when you're and this is something that if you're if you're wanting to persuade people on the other side, um, there's message and then there's method. And, and oftentimes people choose a method that obscures the message. And, and that is actually something that happens when, when people are in, 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 indulging in what's called a heckler's veto. In other words, when they shout down speakers, that's called the heckler's veto. And they say, well, why are you focusing on what we did? Look, this guy that we are shouting down is really bad. Well, the method that you chose to communicate your message, in addition to being unconstitutional, actually enrages people more than informs people. And so there, there, that is, you know, look, if, if you're wanting to protest an issue, I am a firm believer in the right of protest and have defended people in court who radically disagree with me on politics. I, I fight for the rights of others that I would like to exercise myself. But if you're just speaking tactically – well, do you want to persuade people or do you not want to persuade people? And, and that's a question I often ask. And if you want to persuade people, you need to think it through from that standpoint. Do you think that a lot of the, the blowback from the University of Missouri campus situation has some of the, the roots of what's going on with college campuses today? We talk about um, safe spaces a lot. That was right. brought up two years ago. Um, do you think that a lot of what we're seeing now has some roots in what happened at Mizzou? I think there were root, they, these concepts were not invented at Mizzou, but the Mizzou situation hit national news unlike any college uh, any college controversy literally in my adult lifetime. And there's one very simple reason for that, and that is the protesters messed with SEC football. Yeah, you know that that put it from sort of the niche arguments and public policy on Twitter and Facebook front and center into the national consciousness. 
And so the Mizzou controversy, I think, was very influential from that standpoint. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the university has endured such blowback because the controversy hit pop culture. Um, now, there are many other controversies on campus that are actually in many ways more dramatic than what happened in Mizzou, but have not gotten as much attention. For example? For example, you know, those of us who follow politics, when I say Middlebury College in Vermont, you know, immediately they're talking about there was a shout down of Charles Murray, um, the AEI scholar, who followed by a physical, an attempted physical attack on him when he was leaving for his car which resulted in a, a progressive professor who was kind of shielding him getting a, a concussion and being hospitalized. There was a physical attack on a visiting scholar, which as bad as what happened in, in Mizzou was, uh, nothing like that, you know, Melissa Click grabbing somebody by the arm was not the same as sending somebody to the hospital for their free speech. And we've seen that. There was an actual at a Milo Yiannopoulos event in, um, a, gosh, I believe Washington State, uh, somebody was shot. Uh, nobody remembers that. Um, you know, now people do know about the riots in Berkeley, but do people realize that there was a v- extremely hostile and violent a- atmosphere at a, at a Cal State Los Angeles involving my friend Ben Shapiro when he tried to speak? You can go around the country and, and you can point to incident after incident that was physically, as far as physical violence, threatened violence, far beyond what happened at Mizzou, but nobody messed with SEC football. <laughs> no, nobody did that. But I want to kind of take a little bit of an extreme question here. We, we were talking about somewhat mainline conservative thinkers like Ben Shapiro. I wouldn't classify Milo in that. I think no. he's pretty far out there. But in your views, as somebody who has done a lot of free speech cases, is there anything like a college or university can do if, let's say, the Grand Wizard of the KKK wants to speak? Or a more a more present example, someone like Richard Spencer, who is obviously presenting a, a pretty upfront white supremacist right. neo-Nazi view from, right. from speaking. Because I, I also agree with Joe, like I, I don't even as a Jewish person, I would have some hesitancy about saying, no, those people cannot speak in a public place, even though I obviously don't agree with them. But some people would be like, well, giving them a forum is taking things too far. I'd like to hear your opinion about that. Well, so they're, they're unpacking this a little bit, let's start with some basic principles. Number one, I find Milo's speech to be utterly repugnant. I find his influence on the conservative movement to be malignant. Uh, and I think the BuzzFeed, some of your listeners may have seen the BuzzFeed expose that yes. read his emails, and he was worse than you thought. So I think he's a repugnant, uh, he has a repugnant voice in the body politic. But he has exactly the same First Amendment rights that the three of us have, exactly the same. And so if he receives an invitation at a public university campus um, and accepts that invitation, he has exactly the same rights as any other speaker. Uh, And that includes a right to speak in a way where he's not subjected to a shout down or a heckler's veto. And so that puts the onus on the university to protect the rule of law in that circumstance. And I, you know, this is not a new thing. When I was president of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, I got a call from an administrator at a major university who, in fact, the Klan had been, um, had been leafleting their campus, had been on campus in the free speech zones handing out racist leaflets. And he said, well, you know, what can we do about that? I said, the short answer is constitutionally nothing. But the, the educational answer is you, you answer bad speech with better speech. Um, can your students rebut the Klan? Sure they can. 
Can your professors rebut the Klan? Sure they can. And if you can't, if you if your you know intellectual firepower is so lacking that you can't even rebut the likes of those people, you got a bigger problem than free speech. I mean, because this is one thing that's always bothered me. I mean, I'm a journalist, so we're supposed to be careful. But I can't on the on the on the issue of free speech. I think it's really really important for people, uh, young and old, to hear everything that's being said. Yeah. Because what happens is. I think that's where the, some of this fake news comes mm-hmm. out on social media, is that if people haven't had access to what the person has really said or really written or whatever, and this is on either side, yeah. any any side, then they hear stuff and um, like you know some okay like like that George Soros is funding you know uh, 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 liberal protesters, which frankly is not true, but. That's the kind of thing that then circulates because people have not heard any um, of the speeches or read the books or had access to the information. Same way on the right with uh, Spencer and Milo and some of the other uh, even more volatile speakers. I think young people especially, they get curious. And if they don't, if there isn't a formal way for them to hear what the person has to say, and then they can decide for themselves whether they're full of it or not. Then I think then it becomes more dangerous because they hear bits and pieces. I, you know, I think I agree with that. And I think censorship, a culture of censorship has really two major problems attached with it. One, it's extraordinarily divisive, extraordinarily divisive. There are few things that enrage a person more than having their right to speak shut down. Uh, to have the the belief that they are not free to share their their deepest views and opinions. That so it's extraordinarily divisive, and the other thing is it dumbs us down, because it, this goes to your point. So you you wall yourself off in a cocoon. You reject the idea that you can learn from anyone else, or you even reject the idea that you need to understand anyone else. And you know what it makes you do? It makes you prone to believe stupid things. You know, one of the things that I've found is that the people I know in my life who are most walled off from the other side's point of view are the most likely to believe some of these most these deranged conspiracy theories because they have a caricatured view of the other side rather than a, rea- a reality-based view of the other side. And it's and again, then that doubles down on divisiveness. And so, you know, what what do we have in this country? We have a we have a pop culture that's divided and laden with conspiracy theories and, and spewing venom, and it's doing terrible things to our culture. What do you, what effect do you think the president has on all this? I mean, I, I, I know we weren't going to talk a lot about Trump, but it seems like from reading his Twitter feed and from hearing him speak, I don't think he has the same view of free speech that you do. It seems <laughs> like he has a very low tolerance for opinions that don't agree with him, and that type of sentiment may be bleeding into not only the mass culture, but possibly college campuses. I, I'd be interested to hear your take on that. Well, you know, every time he tweets um, and he, you know, he he speaks at a rally and he says, you know, you're fired and um, and and talks about, you know, economic boycotts against the NFL. I'm thankful for the First Amendment because right now the firewall, I think, against his worst impulses and actual censorship is the First Amendment. He literally doesn't have the power to do what he sort of expresses a wish to do. So he talked about loosening up libel laws, 
Well, good luck with that. That would fail um, utterly in, in the Supreme Court. But, but I mean, one of the things that's been less reported the last few months, and I've been reading about this the last few days, and this happens on all sides, but right now there's a lot of attention on this, is that um, the president has been able to make a lot of nominations to various um, court vacancies, and some say that some of those being nominated are much more conservative on these issues. And that there could be a fallout down the road. I'm just interested yeah. in your take on that. So I'm familiar with it. virtually all of his nominees, okay. and they're all very strong on the First Amendment. So the interesting thing that's happening is that Trump is selecting his judges from a bench of of judges that is essentially being – has been cultivated for years. And one thing that I think is very good about the conservative legal movement, whatever people may think about other – aspects of, of conservative, jur- conservative jurisprudence, a strong free speech First Amendment position is a hallmark of the modern conservative legal movement. And, and so Trump's actually nominating a whole bunch of judges who are going to protect the First Amendment. And on going back to free speech a little bit, a little bit off college campus, says one of the things that gained a lot of international attention a few weeks ago was this white supremacist march in Charlottesville, which started on the <laughs> University of Virginia campus. And right. Then spilled out into the actual city. Now, as I was talking with you before the show, I vividly remember in Columbia, Missouri in 2007, Nazis marching through the city. They were given a permit by the city because mm-hmm. there, there is case law that says you can't necessarily say a group can't march because of what they say. Is that a situation of free speech too? Because I've heard a lot of people being like, well, they should never have been allowed to march in the first place. But I go back to that 2007 situation being like, if you if you basically don't allow even the most repugnant people to do something that everybody else can do, then you're in a slippery slope situation. So the law here is really crystal clear. You cannot grant or deny a permit to someone to march in a public space based on their viewpoint. You just can't do it. And so, and the reason for that's pretty plain. I mean, if you open, if you crack open the door to allow that viewpoint discrimination, then you're going to see what happens, what we're seeing on college campuses. I mean, an ACLU, an ACLU attorney shouted down as a white supremacist, which is absurd. Um, so, so viewpoint discrimination and the granting or denying of a, of a permit to march is absolutely forbidden. The problem is what you have to do, and, and this is something that is, it's, this is the rule of law in action. One of the problems that we've seen in recent um, melees in the streets is that police apparently have been sort of standoffish. And when the police are standoffish and then they're only going to intervene when they subjectively feel like life and limb is in danger, which is usually after the violence has started, then you're encouraging the kind of violence that we've seen in Berkeley and the kind of violence that we've seen in Charlottesville. The police have to take as one of their primary job descriptions the protection of constitutional rights. And that often means separating demonstrators so that both have an opportunity to speak, but they don't get nose to nose. And then that's when violence tends to break out. Well, there's been a lot of attention on this in St. Louis, which I think has been somewhat missed nationally because there's so many other things going on, uh, good or bad, is that, you know, we've had protests almost every night. Mm -hmm. Um, This has to do with a a verdict of a policeman who was acquitted in a in a shooting several that happened several years ago. And people feel very passionately about the object to the verdict. But there's been you know, a lot of a- accusations and discussions about some of the police tactics and some of the nights. There's been journalists who've been arrested. There's been some people who say they've been injured. 
I mean, it, it's very volatile. Yeah. And this is continuing. So, I mean, in some ways, your appearance is it's rather um, timely just from that standpoint. Uh, so I'm just, I mean, so are you saying that, I mean, I don't know if you've paid attention to what's been going on here, but mm -hmm. just kind of, I'd be interested in your thoughts, at least in a general sense, as far as what needs to be done to promote free speech, but not violence. Yeah. So, you know, if looking at it from a police standpoint, police, you know, th it's, a, it's a difficult job, but let's sort of articulate it like this. The police have a responsibility to protect property from property damage. They have a responsi responsibility to protect people from violence. They also have a responsibility to protect the right to protest. They have a responsibility to protect constitutional rights. So that means uh, often can mean making sure that streets are clear when a proper protest is occurring, making sure that protesters have the space to protest, making sure they're protected from counter-protesters who might want to intervene and stop it. But that right to speak begins to stop the moment you throw a brick through a window or the moment you throw a brick at a cop or when you block an interstate. And a lot of people – and Blocking an interstate is something a little different from free speech. That's called civil disobedience. And the foundation, one of the foundational principles of civil disobedience is you understand you're violating the law and you accept the consequences of that violation as part of a larger effort for social change. I'm glad you mentioned blocking an interstate because I think that a lot of people that went on the interstate, I think about eight days ago, yeah. they probably knew that they were going to get arrested. Some of them mm -hmm. were probably surprised they got arrested. Right. Um, interestingly, there has been a Republican state representative who has presented a bill to increase the penalties for impeding traffic on an interstate from a misdemeanor to a felony, mm -hmm. and it's undoubtedly in response to that. Right. I'm not sure if you saw that, but I know that there have been bills across the country to increase penalties for people that brought block traffic for various reasons. Knowing for knowing that there is also case law saying that you can get arrested for blocking traffic. What's kind of your feeling on that? Because I feel like that is a pretty big example of, of somebody exhibiting speech, but also um, maybe crossing that line into illegality. So well, not maybe crossing, crossing the yeah. line into illegality. And, and one of the problems you have with blocking an interstate is, you know, you have people who sometimes need to be going from point A to point B for very good reasons, uh, sometimes even for health emergencies. And one of the things that happens when you block an interstate is you're utterly disregarding everyone else's rights on that interstate. And my, my issue with the blocking of the interstates that I've found is uh, I have seen time and again the police not move quickly to remove the protesters. So the real issue is the actual blocking itself. Uh, and the blockage needs to stop as soon as humanly possible because you're actually violating the rights of the motorists and you could be causing harm to the motorists. And so in my view, that's a typical example where uh, one of the things that's absolutely necessary is for the police to ameliorate the situation on the ground as quickly as possible. And if you can do that and you can minimize the length of the blockage, then the severity of the issue starts to go away. Um, but time and again, and, and I think police are beginning to learn as they see that um, if you don't draw the correct lines, things can spiral out of control. I think some time and again we've seen some of these uh, blockages continue for prolonged periods when there's no reason for them to. Now, uh, we've been talking about some of this kind of in a theoretical sense, but as a campus speaker yourself, have you run across cases where people have tried to shout you down or block you or prevent you from speaking? Certainly have been protested. 
uh, multiple times, and I've been interrupted multiple times, but nobody's ever done anything like happened to Charles Murray at Middlebury where I wasn't able to speak and I wasn't able to finish my speech. What do they usually protest about? I mean, in, in the case of you. Uh, that I'm an Islamophobe, homophobe, war criminal. Um, so I'm socially conservative. Uh, I was uh, opposed to the Obergefell decision and debated that issue on college campuses. I'm a veteran of the Iraq War, uh, served during the surge in 0708. Um, and so that is, you know, they, people view me as uh, hostile to Islam as a result of that, when the fact of the matter is I risked my life to help save innocent Muslims from jihadist terrorists. So uh, I find some of the protests to be nonsensical. Um, but, you know, look, we live in an era where if, if obviously I disagree with people on the left on the Iraq war. Obviously, I disagree with most folks on the left on issues like same-sex marriage. Um, but we live in an era where the fact that I disagree labels me as a bigot, uh, not as not as a person, not as a, a fellow citizen who's an opponent, uh, ideological opponent, but I'm just flat out a bigot or I'm flat out a war criminal because you don't like the war. Um, and, and that kind of thing inflames people. And often the protesters don't even know anything about what I wrote or what I did. <laughs> they have no idea, but they're still calling me that. So if somebody, you know, let's say a, a question and answer period, not just like rising up from their seat and saying that, if somebody came up to a microphone and said, I think you're a war criminal. I think that you're a bigot. I think you're the worst person in the world. Respond to that. Would you say that that would be an okay form of speech, even though it's not really a message that you disagree with? It's a dumb form of speech, but it's, you know, I have no problem with somebody saying it because what I want to do is then start the conversation. Why specifically do you think that I'm a war criminal? And often it's because they read it on a flyer. Mm -hmm. um, rather than actually having any knowledge of what I did in Iraq. And so, or it's, I'm a war criminal because the Iraq war was itself criminal. So therefore, if I participated in it, then I'm a criminal. Now, so what's, what's your general message? I mean, like in the, in your parents today, but also on most campuses, kind of what you, do, do you have a general set message? Yeah, so I, 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 first thing, I, I never want to assume that my audience is on board with the concept of free speech. I never want to assume that they are agreeing with me, although a lot of people come because they they do agree and they want to hear me articulate the reasons why I hold the opinion that I hold. But I, I start from the starting presumption that people don't really know why free speech is worthwhile. And so I try to explain why free speech is worthwhile, the value that free speech has had in our culture throughout our history, and then uh, why, it why it needs to be protected and how actually the act of protecting free speech can ease some of our national polarization. Because as I said, one of the things that I vow to do and I try have tried to hold to this my whole career is I will fight for the rights of others that I would like to exercise myself. And that actually builds bonds between left and right that you wouldn't otherwise ordinarily build. What do you see as the best ways to protect free speech? Uh, the best way is culturally. I mean the best way is just convincing people that free speech is valuable. I mean there are legal ways to do it. But here, here's a frightening reality. If you, if you really believe in the, the right of free speech and a culture of free speech – Right now, the case law, the legal protections of free speech are stronger than they've been in perhaps in our nation's history, certainly in, way, in more than a century. And so the law is very strong. But the culture, if you ask people, do you feel free to share your opinion on a hot button issue and you're a college student? The polls say about half of them say no. Uh, if you talk to people in corporate America, again and again, they'll say no. So people don't feel free even though they are more free than they realize and that's because we're losing the culture, cultural respect for free speech. And that's where we have to uh, 
really focus our efforts. I mean, do you think that could lead then to restrictions down the road? Or yes. Is it just, okay. Yes. I mean, I, Go you know, ahead. laws, law and politics are downstream from culture. And so right now we're still living with a broad left-right cons- judicial consensus in support of free speech. It exists. Uh, you know, this is part of the legacy of the free speech movement. This is the legacy of a long record of law school education that values free speech. But a lot of that is eroding, and you're seeing uh, law schools now uh, much more open to a position that is advocating censorship or, or restricting speech, much more open to a European concept of civil liberties, which is not having civil liberties. <laughs> and so you're, you're seeing that opening, and that's why it's so vital to push back now, or we will see it manifest itself in law. The don't tase me bro guy at the <laughs> University of Florida, should he have been tased? No, well— <laughs> So he was interrupting. He doesn't have a right to interrupt, uh, you know, a speech. That's kind of the that's the heckler's veto, um, and he certainly didn't have a right to resist. But I have a feeling a cop could have gotten him out of there without a, tase, a, a tasing. But you know, look, I'm not an I'm not an officer. I don't know how difficult it is to uh, move a. Uh, an angry protester, but I I looked at that. And I did not see grounds for tasing. Cra- crazily, that was like ten years ago. Now, have you seen? I mean, you because you are in the speech circuit. Is there more interest in what you have to say? Oh or? yes, absolutely. Um, you know, five, six, seven years ago, I would talk at gatherings around the country about problems of free speech on campus, and people would look at it like, oh, that's interesting, but not. You know, it's almost like um. I'm hearing about a little minor niche problem where some of the fact patterns are really fascinating, but I don't really, you know. (laughs) Now I'm getting calls all the time, come here, speak about this issue. Um, It it has really burst onto the national scene, and I think the one event that did more than anything else is University of Missouri. We're we're on the map for some reason. (laughs) I just want to thank you so much for coming on our show and talking to, to us about this really important topic. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. How would people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? At David A. French. And then you can read my writing on nationalreview.com. Now, before we end this show, I do have to ask all three of us, what is your favorite Tom Petty song? Joe, you go first. Well, it has to be Don't Back Down. What about you? Uh, well, I mean, that's... I can't say I'm a much of a fan, so that's about the only one I remember. <laughs> well, I was going to say Refugee, but since two people on this program have said "Don't, I won't back down, that'll be the outro music. Until then, so long. <laughs>